Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. This is one of the context editions, and this one means so much to me. This is Lex. Because my wife, who comes up often in this podcast, is a teacher. She teaches third and fourth grade right now. And so she has been dealing with having to transition her classroom to entirely remote teaching. So it's amazing. You walk in and you see this four by four grid of all of these kids learning their fractions and how to pluralize English words in Zoom in these little boxes. So while it's been incredible to watch this happen, it's also been hugely challenging because there's not that level of intimacy as there is when you are there and able to interact with the kids directly and read body language and have that intimacy that comes with being in a classroom. And so one of the resources that she's been using is TED-Ed, TED Education. It's been invaluable. And I recently just learned about a TED-Ed program that is all about teaching kids about Earth called Earth School. And so today, I'm thrilled to say we have the founder of TED Ed and one of the, the creators, along with his team of Earth School on the podcast to talk about what it's like leading the way in terms of how we're going to make education in this new 21st century that's so digitally intensive, both engaging and enjoyable and a great experience for the kids while taking advantage of the technology that we have available to us. Uh, he is inspiring. The conversation just meant so much to me because I can see the work that, that they do, that TED Ed does every day, and how much better it makes teachers' lives, and then how much better it makes their students' lives. So without further ado, this is Logan Smalley, the founder of TED Ed, and on behalf of teachers everywhere and husbands and wives of teachers everywhere, let me begin by saying thank you, Logan, and thank you for your team and the work you're doing. Hey, Logan, how are you? Hey, Lex, how's it going? Good, how are you? Pretty good. Um, oh, there you are. You were buried under my other windows. I couldn't find you. <laughs> Lost but not forgotten, I hope. Yeah. I wanted to thank you again for making the time to do this. I'm really excited about digging into uh, what we're about to dig into. Um, I took a deep dive through Countdown um, and the Earth School, and cool. I wanted to just start off by saying I showed Earth School to my wife, and she, who is a third and fourth grade teacher and works at a, an elementary school, and they love it. They're already oh, building it into their curriculum, and they're like, we wish we knew about this before, but they are all about it. Cool. Yeah. Well, so, I got good news. We're, you know, we're, we're continuing to release. We're almost, I think we're in the last week of releases, and then, we, you know, the idea is to do it again next year. Some of the same content, some new content. Oh, World they, changes, so does our school. Yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the, I, the world's changing so quickly now. It's tough to keep up, even like week to week, let alone year to year. Agreed. So um, I think if we could start off by uh, understanding what TED Ed is and how it's different, and maybe you could tell us the story about how it came into being as a way to sort of explain what it is and why, how it's different from the, the other TED and TEDx. Yeah. So TED Ed is short for TED Education, and it's TED's Youth and Education Arm. Um, the way that it came about was uh, I was a TED fellow in 2009. Prior to being a TED fellow, I was a teacher and a documentarian. And uh, I got 
recognized for my nonprofit documentary work with a TED fellowship. And when you're a TED fellow, you get to pitch a project. And TED fellow, by the way, just means, you know, you're sort of a non-profiteer doing, you know, what TED perceives and hopefully other people perceive as interesting work. And uh, they bring you to the conference for free and help you meet people who might, you know, support your work and support your art or your activism or whatever you're there for. And uh, that certainly happened. And one of the mechanisms they do that is uh, inviting you to pitch a project to try and become a TED Senior Fellow. And so leveraging my love of um, filmmaking and teaching, I pitched something called TED-Ed, put forth a, you know, a concept of basically you know, arranging TED Talks so that they were optimized for the classroom. And um, by no stretch was I the first person to ever you know, observe or say that TED was valuable in the education space. Um, but I did put, you know, kind of some framework to it and uh, some vision behind it that they got excited about. But ultimately they actually said, um, good idea, bad timing in 2009 because TED was a much smaller organization then. And um, I really respect the, the leadership group for saying that because education, you know, is not something you wanna tread lightly into. I'm not discouraging anyone from taking the first step but it's something you want to do responsibly, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's for the kids and for the students. And so for a lot of orgs that are in Ted's position and I won't name any names actually just kind of crash, crash into the space and, you know, exercise kind of hype and hyperbole and say this and that, and everybody kind of follows it. And then, uh, it, you know, ultimately that company or that service, fails or makes a big mistake that compromises, you know, privacy for students or, you know, there's all sorts of mistakes um, that can be made. So what was part it, of your core, your core pitch, your core platform that made it different, that ensured that you guys, you wouldn't make those same mistakes? Yeah. Well, I mean, my core, my first initial pitch was really just about optimizing the talks as they were for the educational use case. So, right. Like they were being produced captured, published, and being viewed by millions of people by 2009. Super popular podcast, TED.com was thriving, but it was for a general audience, right? Like it, it didn't consider this particular needs of a eighth grade science teacher or a seventh grade English teacher or a, you know, lower primary teacher in Spain, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, it was great content, but not focused on your particular audience, like a classroom. Yeah. And a lot of nuance, nuance comes in on how does a teacher, where time is the most important thing possible, how does a teacher find something quickly that's relevant to them and what they teach and to their students, right? So there's a whole discovery question there, which can involve like tagging it to a different lexicon, um, helping show alignment with standards that teachers are beholden to, if that's the case where they are, um, language, lexicon levels, learning objectives, et cetera. So there's a whole like set of product questions around like, how do you make it easy? And then the next big nuance is right. Like very different from me and you watching a Ted talk is a teacher distributing in a Ted talk to 30 kids. First of all, are they you even distributing everything? Showing it at the front of the classroom? Are you sending it to them? Do they have devices? Do they not have devices? Do they have internet at home? Do they not have internet at home? right? Are you sending the transcript instead of the video? So there's all this just like, you know, <laughs> challenges that I find really interesting. Maybe not everyone does, but, uh, you know, when you, when you find solutions to each of those uh, from a kind of human centered approach, 
um, you really empower people, right? Like TED Talks are great and content. I think the content TED Ed makes is great. And um, I think students and teachers agree. And so you just got to kind of reduce the friction for them to be able to watch it. Yeah. I engage with it. I have TED Ed pulled up right now. And I got to say, the breadth of content that you guys have is astounding. Just on the homepage, it's everything from the world's most evil wizard riddle, <laughs> 300,000 views, to why yeah. should you read Moby Dick? You know, that makes a little bit less, you know, 150,000 views. And then the opioid epidemic, which is a heck of a project of a heck of a topic, a topic to introduce to kids. And also the viral science of testing, 250,000 views. Um, and so like you guys really are tackling topical questions that span the gamut from stuff that could be a little bit heavier for kids to understand the things that are probably like, you know, a little bit more obvious. How do you go about creating that transition from that content for things that could be a little bit above their level or, or touch on issues that are, you know, polarizing or difficult to understand. And then the philosophy behind how you take that and make it accessible for a student. Yeah. Great question. I mean, like, I also think it's important to note, right. Thanks for listing those, those great projects. Um, at the risk of sounding a little shallow, I think it's also important to note that those videos came out within the last two weeks. So if you're talking about why should you read Moby Dick, that was actually published on Tuesday and today is Thursday, or that was actually published two days ago. Right. It's and, still um, relevant. Moby Dick will, Moby Dick will never <laughs> die. Right. Right. And, and the opioid uh, epidemic video was published a couple of weeks ago. And like, I do say that like with care, right? Because if I was going around acting like views is the only metric of success, um, you should be seriously skeptical of everything I say. Right. And um, uh, th that's not the case. These topics, each of them is um, submitted by an expert. If you go to another part on the, on the site, the, the support slash nomination, if you're actually looking at the site, anyone can pitch a TED ed idea, pitch us mm -hmm. on a, on a lesson idea. And so we get, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of pitches a week. We go through them. Um, we have a process, you know, for, pro uh, for, we have a procedure for processing them. Um, and when one really pops, we engage the educator, the expert in a phone call, talk it out. Um, inevitably, almost inevitably, they have an expertise in a topic or a subject matter. And we have an expertise in writing that for animation. That's mm -hmm. really kind of what we do. Writing that for animation and helping angle it. Like if you think about it, right? Like my, my team and all of this is a team effort, right? We've done this 14,000 times now. So there's 14,000 original TED Ed animations. Each of them is with an expert and an animator. Those 14,000 video, videos have been viewed over two and a half billion times wow. by learners. So we've had just like so many cycles of analyzing, making sure it works for the educator, making sure it works for the student, making sure it works distributed across the channels and curriculums. And, and, and we bring all that, that our part is caring for that wisdom. And then the expert is obviously the expert, right? Like I'm definitely right. not an expert on the opioid epidemic or, um, you know, math riddles or traffic jams, <laughs> which is today's topic. Uh, but, um, luckily 
experts are excited to to share their their expertise through our platform. Well, that's actually a really awesome segue to talk about what's different about Earth School and the way that you really created a platform that has a lot of depth. So it's not just a video archive that has a tremendous amount of breadth, but each one of these segments has things that you can do to interact with it. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit like what what the philosophy for Earth School was, why it came about, and then what how it is how it's different how it actually on a use case basis is different than your normal product yeah sure so it kind of actually touches back to to what i was starting with when you're solving for the teacher right like a teacher has no time a teacher has no time they're so busy and they're so dedicated to helping their 30 times four classes or whatever size they teach students succeed so one of the best things that we can do for them um, is, is make content more easily discoverable. Taking an hour to find a, a high quality free piece of content versus 10 minutes is the difference between getting to like cook dinner and spend time with your own kids and, you know, or, and in some cases, sadly, you know, or unfortunately, uh, but respectably have a second job, right? Like talking about uh, a lot of teachers are in that position. So the gift of time is part from the teacher perspective, what Earth School is doing. It's arranging high quality, free, provenly engaging uh, videos around that, you know, that are designed to help students celebrate, explore, and connect with nature. Yeah. It's arranging them across themes, right? Like, so some of the themes are the nature of stuff, the nature of society, the nature of nature, nature of change. And, um, not only sharing the video, but also pre-preparing pre um, questions, dig deeper materials, discussion questions, and then providing technology, which our site does, that allows them to quickly customize those preset things to meet the individual needs of their students. TED-Ed is a kind of a starting place platform, and the way that it's actually used is teachers remix all the content on TED-Ed quickly to meet the needs of their students. And you said about saving time these days when parents are also homeschooling, are also holding down a job, are also cleaning, cooking, right. like hey, nothing is more important. <clears throat> Sometimes I forget that we're a podcast, which is ridiculous considering the giant microphone I have in my face, but <laughs> it's beneficial to like walk people through what this actually looks like. So on the site, you can see, like you said, it's broken up into six five-week lessons. Each one yeah. of these weeks has like day one, day two, day three, all the way through day 30. And week one, like you said, is the nature of our stuff. And when you click on it, the first one is should we eat bugs? And that takes you to a page that not only has a video embedded, but on the right, there's a like a little hamburger menu bar that has watch, think, dig deeper, discuss, and finally, dot, dot, dot. And so with each one of those portals, you can take more out of this basic information that you've learned and then apply it in different ways. So it's a really cool an interactive method of getting the learners in this case, anyone to go beyond just the video to get like one, two, three layers deeper into what the topic is and how it can apply to their lives. From a pedagogy standpoint, if that's of interest, uh, Always. yeah, right. Like what it is, is it's a formative evaluation tool. So the, so if you look at the page, there's, there's a button that says customize this lesson. And that's what I was saying. Click it. If you're logged in as a teacher, it allows you to edit, everything on the page to, to meet the needs of your learners. You do that, 
you, it renders your new lesson on your own link. You distribute that to your students and you start getting data back from them. You can require them to log in or not. That's up to you and up to them. Um, but once they do that, keep in mind, it took you maybe 10, 20, 30 minutes to do that, which is fast. You send it to them, data's coming back in. It's a, it's a quick formative evaluation tool that allows you to assess where your students are with the knowledge. And then from a teacher perspective, remember real teaching, not sharing videos, but real teaching, you start um, brokering your attention and distributing and allocating your attention uh, to the students who need the most help, right? Prioritizing them. Um, and then to the student, students who are moving ahead, you have these dig deeper materials to encourage them to go further and further. And suddenly this tool enabled you to kind of like be in multiple places at once and to better manage the, the kind of like social uh, bandwidth, if you will, that you're applying across the needs of your students. Yeah. Yeah. I, I keep going back to my wife because she's also my roommate and the person with whom I share a hundred percent of my time. And I have the opportunity now yeah. to watch her teach these kids and, and it's having those tools and those resources to be able to quickly address what individual students needs is invaluable, especially in the yeah. situation where we are removed from them. You can't just walk over and talk to a kid in real time and benefit from their full attention. You're communicating yeah. through a screen. Um, so I want to jump to that bigger question of like, what does education look like now versus in the future? But since we are called who's saving the planet, I got to ask, you're, you called it earth school. It'd be mm hand -hmm. with the topic of, of this, our little blue marble, our home. Why, mm -hmm. why, why was that the place where you said, this is of all the things we could choose, this is the one we're going to go with. For us, this earth school you know, it's about creating a common language, a common sense of discovery. It's about, you know, it's about using the scale and possibility of the internet to show students and teachers and parents a, a kind of common space, a common language, a common appreciation, sense of exploration and connectivity with earth around us, which by the way, is real in real life, you know, it's, it's yeah. much larger and harder to navigate than a website. Um, but that is in fact, you know, there is one earth, uh, and, and we're on it. And so if we, we feel like if this, if the earth school can help us comprehend the world better around us, then we'll be in a better spot to, as you like to say, save it. Well, that's the idea. I mean, the alternative yeah. is pretty bleak. Yeah, I like to say that too, by the way. Can you share with us what those students and those teachers are telling you about what's working and what's not? And if you have any feedback loops that have happened over the last two, three months when our entire idea of how education works got a little bit upended, are there any you know, initial reactions to that where you're kind of like pulling out some of the threads to see what the bigger picture might look like? Yeah. I mean, so those are massive questions. That's it's right. hard to. Uh, um, well, we got to save the like, whole planet here. You know, it's a big <laughs> yeah. undertaking. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think that that's actually an interesting. Your like coda on that question is is kind of like how I think about it. The internet is really good at packaging and distributing sort of like cohesive things. I don't think that in the real world, climate, environment climate change actually is a cohesive concept. It's, it's 
so wide and so big and so distributed that you can't comprehend it. It is not something that you can intuitively understand. You can certainly appreciate it and live by it and die by it. Uh, but it's not something that I can just like break off a crisp sentence and have you and me be on the same page about what climate change is and what we need to do. <laughs> and so I actually like leaning into, I think some one thing that Earth School has done really well and that I'm really proud of the team for, and that we've heard in the feedback from you know, students and teachers and parents who are using it is the, the bite-sized approach, but the bites are, you know, to stick with the metaphor, part of a part of a 30-piece meal. <laughs> and really to accidentally stick with the metaphor, right? The first lesson is about should we eat bugs? That's just a fun question, right? Like you can imagine any elementary school, middle school, high school, college post-college that's like right like i want to know i want to revisit this exploration of should we eat bugs because my you know my upbringing i'm like oh gross bugs even though i love i'm fascinated by them but that's actually not the case in so many other places on this thing we call earth um it's also pretty arbitrary that i don't like bugs like why don't i eat other things that are someone else could you know it's not hard to argue why they would think what i'm eating is repulsive relative to a bug. So I did, are, I did watch that video yeah. and I am happy to report that there are certain places in the world that collect and eat giant tarantulas. And so <laughs> I am, I am so much more of a food coward than I thought I was. I thought I was super adventurous, but even that I'm like, Oh man, I got a ways to go before yeah. my, my horizons are truly broadened. That bite-sized gateway, like you and I just launched into right, like an impassioned volley about yeah. um, eating bugs. <laughs> And that happens on a, like, look at that video. It's been viewed 2.5 million times. You have to presume that that's happened some percentage, you know, a non-zero amount of times. So, well, you're, you're on the cutting edge then of how technology can influence communication in this specific lens, which is communication and educating education setting. And you use the word pedagogy, pedagogy, which I believe means something along the lines of that. How do we communicate things to students? How do we teach them? What do you see coming down the pike? Give us a give us a little look into the future. Mm. I think that um, I do think that one of the silver linings of the pandemic is it really highlights the inequity of bandwidth and device distribution. Now it's weird to call that a silver lining, right? Like highlighting injustice and unfairness but one of you know like as an advocate for students around the world it's part of our day-to-day -day life considering connectivity problems um, device problems massive inequity racism you know plagues of humanity that are just as present in our schools as they are anywhere else unfortunately yeah and part of you know the, the maddening thing from my perspective is trying to get people to just admit that and realize that and like pay attention to it or care about it. And then suddenly this pandemic comes along and no, no one would have chosen it. But suddenly every, every parent understands how important a teacher is, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, every uh, person who uh, is, is in proximity of a student who's engaging with a class is going to be closer to understanding whether that class is functioning or not because the kids either all do or all don't have devices, right? Like when I was a teacher, 
the, you know, um, it's tempting to think like, oh, I'll just assign digital homework. You can't do that if one kid in your class doesn't have bandwidth or a device. Um, there are solutions and there's resourcefulness, but like whose fault is it? Like, should that kid have a device? Should we figure out a way to get them a device? I think yes, because then you can start taking advantage of, you know, machines and, and computers and computing power, which, you know, we all, we, so many people do in a place of business and a place of work and a place of civil society. So like, um, uh, I just think that debate is so critical and it was so not happening at the scale it needed to happen at. And now there's all these advocates and all these resource um, people and places really pushing on that fundamental problem that is access and equity in education. And then once we get that, a certain level of uh, kind of next level internet stuff, uh, next level internet opportunity, in my opinion, kicks in. Until there's equality and equity, those awesome things that, they, that a connected world promises aren't as practical as you want them to be. They're practical for people of privilege, but not uh, who don't have it. I love the way you talk about the internet as a tool to actually enhance our humanity, something that can bring us more together and give us an idea to see the nuances in each other as opposed to a more <clears throat> standardized or numeric or quantitative, but wholly inefficient assessment. That's a, that's right. a really, yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful, a wonderful worldview. Um, and translating the access to that technology into action in the real world, or, and this brings us back to what you guys at TED are doing, which is taking the idea of the earth school and then putting it forward. And I don't know if these are related or not, but the countdown project that you have, which seems to be a much more, uh, active sort of like, let's get involved and let's institute change as opposed to, educate ourselves yeah. is that what can you just tell us a little bit about what that is what that does i'd love to talk about countdown a little <laughs> bit i mean in some ways what countdown is uh is ted's first worldwide commitment to a specific issue it's ted going from an ideas company that's dedicated to spreading ideas uh to an ideas and action company yeah. And so it's just a focused, right? Like there's a, you could say we become an action organization and suddenly try and um, facilitate and hold people accountable to actions across a set of things. I don't think we're really well positioned to do that. Instead, we just defined a very focused area, which is, you know, the crisis of our time, the, the climate crisis. And we're trying to build up energy and commitments and, knowledge and entrepreneurship and you name it in the climate space so we're using ted's convening power to name a space uh that you know, under the banner of countdown.ted.com to uh bring people together and so actually you know in a way earth school like manifests in some ways under that it wasn't it was also in partnership with the un but mm -hmm. right like we'll be working with them uh in the context of countdown in other ways also mm -hmm. Well, let me just um, well, say, let me just show say what it is. What it's for the people that are don't have the benefit yeah, of yeah. sitting next go to you it. and I. When you go to countdown.ted.com, there's a big you know 
a very bold statement that says countdown it's time let's turn the time on climate and then you scroll down it says dear humans our home is in danger so this is a very like you said this is a translation from like here's a portal for information to this is a evocative call to action type message you know this is like Mm -hmm. here's a thing that we need to confront and it requires action and then it illustrates the 55 gigatons of CO2 that need to go down to zero. And I guess what it had said in the past is that this was going to culminate in a conference on October 10th, 2020, 10, 10, 2020. And I guess that's probably gotten pushed back into the future a little bit now that we don't really know what the world looks like. But what it was cool is that it laid out five different areas that Ted would be focusing on power, built environment, transport, food and nature. Um, we on this podcast have had people on to talk about each one of those, and you can definitely say they, they each present their own very unique challenges. Yeah. And I don't know exactly what the end goal is of this, whether it is to consider to continue a conversation, whether it is to get people involved and engaged in a more general sense, or, and I guess this will bear out as, like you said, they're sort of shaping how this is going to look, whether there's a, a more discreet outcome something that is yeah no no it there is uh it is called countdown the idea is to count down to you know zero net carbon emissions yeah um uh, you know definitely not by 2021 but is it is to uh cut it in half by 2030 and to cut it um to zero by 2040 there will be an event somewhere somehow some way um whether it's virtual physical uh and there will be a conference somewhere, somehow, some way next year. But I would encourage people who are like interested in this to follow the space, sign up for the newsletter, because it's meant to be a, a year, a multi-year commitment across all sectors, you know, lead, really kind of leading the space, promoting, you know, podcasts like this. We're trying to build a really big tent and use Ted's amplification power to get everybody on the planet in the business of saving the planet in the way that, you know, they can and to do it together. Yeah. Well, that word business, the business of saving the planet, we have a particular, I have a particular point of view in that saving the planet is going to require that type of mentality. If we're relying Mm -hmm. on people's reasonableness and altruism, it's probably not going to get us there as fast as we need to. We need to start leveraging some of our, more reliable human attributes like self-interest and greed, and then put all of that together toward what should be our, you know, our common goal, which is to not die. Yeah. I mean, look, the, I'm no, I'm not an expert, um, but the, the civilian in me with opinions totally agrees. Like, I think like, right. Like you can't see it succeeding without business incentives being aligned somewhere somehow. Yeah. Um, The professional in me also says, won't succeed uh, with the mass ignorance around climate, um, right? Yeah. Like one of the fundamental problems with climate is that no one understands it. That's what TED Ed's solving for. That's what Earth School's solving for, trying to A, get free high quality materials out there that help young people and not in parentheses, adults <laughs> <laughs> understand this. Um, and also empowering the incredible young people who do understand it and who are advocating and who, you know, in such a beautiful way have collaborated with our platform in the past. So, right. Like I don't want to act like 
there's mass ignorance among young people. In fact, I think young people get it more, but you can't solve problem. You can't solve climate until a certain critical mass of people understand it and can talk cohesively in a fact-based way about it. And I also always love to drive home the point. If you think about schools, right? Like you were in science classes, I was in science classes. We got good grades, we got bad grades. The whole thing is like students, you know, do science, do math, you're going to be graded. Uh, if, you, if you don't do this right, you'll be held back a grade. If you do do this right, you'll get accolades and opportunities, right? Oversimplifying. And then you grow up and you go to the real world and you look at companies destroying the environment. And it's like, actually, if you're super rich uh, or you know whatever capitalistic force is in play, you can completely disregard science. Everything we told you, <laughs> <laughs> and the, all the opportunity you got to get here completely just so i want students i want greta and every other climate activist in the world to issue a standardized test to adults and say pass this science test here's a hundred science questions that you made me pass in eighth grade if you don't pass it you cannot trespass on the environment anymore right because that's ultimate it's like there's this super massive like right in front of us hypocrisy <laughs> It's like you don't get to graduate school unless you pass science. But if you graduate school, you actually don't have to do science. What? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, I cannot imagine that the uh, success rates of people having to take a ninth grade science exam would yeah. be pretty good in the general population. Well, it's just like, it's just like, what are we teaching people? Like, because, you know, like, it's literally like, it's not up for debate. There, there are facts that every day people in power with lots of money set aside for convenience and profits. And I'm not like, I can actually understand that, right? Like I understand the value of a dollar. I understand the value of convenience. I'm not saying I want to participate in it, but it's reasonable, but you can't like the hypocrisy of you in order to get my job where you make money and power, you must pass school. And to do that, you must get scores on a test. And then once you do that, you actually need to set aside everything you learned and disregard science. <laughs> to me, I just keep thinking of it as one of those just wicked problems, right? That everyone wishes they could say a say a thing that you know amounts to a silver bullet, or at least like a silver bullet within a specific sector. And um, I feel like m my role, and when I say my role, I mean my org and my team's role, is to just help kids uh and students come at it from a smarter place than we are <laughs> from a different baseline right because it, it is a 10-year problem and a 20-year problem and a 30-year problem and a 40-year problem and, and and a sustainability problem long term and so i know it, it you know i wish i had the expertise and chops to like engage in some of the stuff that i'm sure you've heard from so many guests um but that's actually, um, you know, I just need, need another life to be able to do that properly. Instead, what I focus on is building channels where those people can be heard at a, you know, at a m much larger scale and in a much, and in multiple languages and by young people who can take their wisdom and knowledge and add to it and build on it and remix it. And, um, you know, maybe come across with those reforms that that um, that you recommend and that others recommend. Well, I think that, as it were, is a wonderful summation of what you guys are doing and what you're about. And it is absolutely a laudable endeavor. 
um, from the macro scale. And I'm going to keep coming back to it from the micro scale of my wife in our kitchen, being able to use these tools on a day in day out basis to make her life easier. And which in, in turn makes her kids lives better because they're learning in a more interesting and engaging way. So like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, applause all around for, for that kind of work. It's really a pleasure to be able to lend you Thank our you. de minimis platform, comparatively speaking, but nonetheless, we really appreciate it. I appreciate that. And I take those applause and transfer them to all the amazing teammates and people that I get to collaborate with. You know, it's uh, every video we make, 40 people touch it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to stay tuned as well to see what, how the Countdown project evolves. And um, everyone else definitely needs to go check out TED at Earth School or the Earth School through TED. It is such a cool platform, no matter what age learner you are. We all can stand to learn whether or not we're going to eat bugs and 29 other incredibly useful lessons. Yeah, and thank you for having me on the show. And I hope um, as you come across experts in the space, you'll nominate them as TED Ed educators. You know, Absolutely. Like like we said, it's an open nomination form. We'll work with them to turn their expertise into a professionally made animation and share it with young people uh, Absolutely. all over the world. Uh, 100%. We would love to. We featured on Tuesday's episode two guys that have a beetle that farts fire eats plastic and creates electricity (laughs) you did like that's that like that is the quintessential ted ed animation no offense i love podcasts but let's be honest that's a better animation than a hundred percent like that you just said needs to be visualized it's yours it's my parting (laughs) gift to you please take it share it (laughs) thank you i'll take it all right logan thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it Well, thanks.